listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Franklin Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be talking about Titan, rings, and wine. In addition, we'll be joined by Professor Ann Forrest, who will talk about robots and humans. Also, we'll find out what the epididymis is. So stay tuned for all of this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. Coming right up here on Berkeley Grocks. Welcome back to Perfect Rocks. I'm Franklin. And I guess I was making Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Excited, actually. You know, there's always so many things to be excited about every week in science. Indeed, I am this week. And why is that? I went to the American Geophysical Union's annual meeting. Does any group of scientists throw a party like the American Geophysical Union? <laughs> oh, man, they're awesome. We even had a wine tour to Napa. How do they justify that geophysically? They had a few professors talking about the geophysics of the environment where winemaking seems to be so prevalent. And actually, some current issues include how global climate change could affect future harvest of wine. So are they saying that global warming then could uh, affect our fine Pinot Noirs? Well, it depends on which variety of grapes you have and which kind of wine you want, but it turns out if we increase our temperature another degree or two, we'd be at the upper end of the limits of most of the varietals we have right now, but in fact, that'll be good for Bordeaux since they're actually a bit cooler than Napa, and it turns out that'll shift it into the region where a lot of different grapes would flourish quite well. Hopefully you got to drink some good wine though as well. Oh, actually I did. Uh, In fact, we visited Opus. It's supposedly one of the premier wineries that's just opened in the last few years. And we also went to Stag Leap, where we met the owner, Mr. Wiernarski, whose wine actually uh, made Napa famous in 1976 during the bicentennial of the U.S. celebrations in France, where they had a competition and his wine actually bested a lot of the French wines. Brought the California wines into the world spotlight. Well, basically destroyed a myth that only France could produce fine wine. And so now we have fine California wine. I think that myth was basically propagated by the French. Ah, they're good, you know, (laughs) but not that good. Yeah. Continuing our coverage of the American Geophysical Union, apparently we know more about weather now. You mean we can forecast it? Perhaps even on other planets. Wow, we really need that, huh? <laughs> I need that on my weather channel. Especially when you're planning a wedding, you really <laughs> want to know what the weather's like on, say, places like Titan. Ah. <laughs> which uh, apparently they can now do because the Cassini spacecraft, which has been gathering evidence of various things around Saturn, in particular has been watching giant moon Titan. And Cassini apparently flew past Titan several times and been able to see a lot of the cloud structures that are actually on Titan. And they think that they could probably measure actually global wind patterns and things like that just by these images. So what kind of rain? Is it like droplets of sulfuric acid coming down on a cold, rainy day? It's droplets of love is what (laughs) it is. And, you know, they have a special love detector on there. I really don't want to know what Venus is like. (laughs) So this is actually quite interesting because they will be launching Huggins Probe into Mm -hmm. the surface of Titan to actually find out what it's like on the surface itself. And if it actually survives its descent and doesn't land in some gooey mush of organic materials or crash into some sort of lake, it might tell them a lot about the surface and uh, what's going on with the weather on Titan. Cool. So this was presented at the American Geophysical Union meeting here in San Francisco on 16th of December. (laughs) 
So speaking of Saturn, do you like their rings? You know, I like them especially when they're deep fried. Deep fried? Well, uh, you may have to hurry up since the E-ring is supposedly uh, dissipating these days. Can you get that still on the web? I'm not sure, but it's the one ring to rule them all. So also, this is a study carried out by the Cassini spacecraft. They're showing that the E-ring of Saturn is evaporating away based on certain emissions of oxygen they've seen over the past year. The uh, gravitational pull of Saturn is no longer able to keep all these particles in orbit? Is that the idea? Supposedly there's something going on with the magnetic field and how it's affecting the dust particles, but what this finding shows is that in 100 million years, these rings could be gone. So gotta enjoy them while we can. That's too bad, because you know, the E-ring was my favorite ring of them all, you know? Man. Some people like the F-ring. <laughs> Some people like the cock ring. I don't know. <laughs> The sea ring, right? Yeah, I guess we got to go catch it while we can. Yes. Well, so plan your trips out there. You can check the weather, of course, on Titan. Right. Plan your visit and catch the moons. This was also presented at the American Geophysical Union, but it was work carried out by Professor Donald Shemansky at USC, and it was also recently reported in Science Express. And that's all for a look at recent developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, Professor Anne Force will join us to discuss her book, God in the Machine, What Robots Teach Us About Humanity and God. So stay tuned. to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, robots have fascinated the public for years, appearing in countless films, books, and television shows. The increasingly lifelike capability of robots in the real world has many prominent thinkers wondering how humans and their creations will interact in the future. Will a thinking machine be regarded as a person, differing from humans only in design? Will even the most human-like robots be seen as possessing a soul? Well, joining us today to discuss these issues of robots and our humanity is Professor Anne Forst. Professor Forst is a theologian and research scientist and visiting professor of theology and computer science at St. Bonaventure University. Formerly, she was a research scientist at the Artificial Intelligence Laboratory at MIT, where she founded and directed the God and Computers Project. She is the author of the new book, God and the Machine, What Robots Teach Us About Humanity and God. Professor Force, thank you very much for joining us today on Brick and Rocks. Well, thank you for having me. It's certainly our pleasure, and you've certainly written a uh, fascinating, and I, I guess I would have to say somewhat controversial book. <laughs> thank um, you. <laughs> I'm curious, though. I mean, this is an issue that a lot of people would indeed find somewhat controversial, is this relationship between uh, robot building and God, which some find somewhat incompatible, but how can these two be related? Well, first of all, what I realized is when we try to build humanoid robots in our image, we really realize how complex we humans are. 
when we really try to build something that moves like we and acts like we and is smart like us, our appreciation for nature grows. And I would put that in spiritual terms, our admiration for God's creation grows. So basically, building humanoid robots in our image is in a way a spiritual enterprise. I see. And what are sort of the motivations that for humans for actually building these robots then? In the literature, I find two different motivations. The one motivation is kind of the more hubristic, arrogance, you know, playing God mm-hmm. motive trying to be like God and trying equal God and so on. The other one is a little bit more modest goal, which is more trying to find out how we work, learning more about who we are, learning more about what actually makes us us by trying to rebuild us and seeing where the failures are, seeing where we succeed and therefore find some solutions for who we are. And actually, it's the second attempt that I appreciate and mostly discuss in my book. I'm not interested in people who are arrogant <laughs> or interested in people who are really seriously interested in who we are and try to find that out and try to join that millennia-old quest with building robots. Indeed. So one of the stories you mentioned early on is the stories of like, the Jewish traditions of the Gollum stories. Yes. And how you could actually see the two points of views in those stories as well. The Golem stories are interesting because they really have the explicit motive of prayer, that Golem building, construction of artificial humans built from clay is actually a prayer. And the nice thing about the Golem tradition, they go back to the 13th century to the Jewish mysticism called Kabbalah, but there is a real connection between real existing AI in artificial intelligence in our life and this old Eastern European Jewish motive, because several of the founders of AI and several of the early big-notch scientists scientists come from that tradition and actually relate themselves to that tradition and see themselves, basically see those golem builders, those early ancient golem builders as their ancestors. Let's talk a lot about humans as storytellers. How does this relate to our motivation, that understanding robots and ourselves? People have always analyzed humans as thinkers, as cognitive. And so people have, in the early beginnings of artificial intelligence, people have tried to build machines or programs that could think. You have to do chess playing, mathematical theory, improving language, all that. And I define humans as mainly embodied and interactive. I mean, that is really what makes us us, not the individual that thinks, but actually the person that is in community with other persons through embodiment. We share a world, a physical world, and we interact in that world through stories. And it's kind of interesting because you can see it on the very profane level of neurons, Mm -hmm. where we have pattern recognition and the way neurons interact, that our brain already creates narratives. And you can, of course, recognize it on the highest level of human societies interacting, where they have narratives about how they came into place, how they came into beating, what's the meaning, what's their identity, all that. So we tell stories on all different levels. And I found out that this is actually a very fruitful attempt to bring theology into the realm of science, because science tells a lot of stories. Mm-hmm. And theology obviously tells a lot of stories, too. And I think instead of playing out, oh, that is objective science, which mm-hmm. doesn't exist, in fact, and that is subjective theology, I think the storytelling approach brings us much closer to actually get and talk to one another and enrich both sides of the dialogue. Indeed. Uh, you do actually mention quite a bit in uh, one of your chapters about the sort of conflict that arose while you're trying to bring these two <laughs> sides together at MIT there. Yes, um, <laughs> some people didn't like me there. It took me probably a year, at least a year, before the heads would stop turning whenever the term evolution was mentioned, <laughs> um, because they couldn't imagine that I, as a theologian, actually had no trouble with evolution, mm. which is kind of, I think, really the idea behind. I mean, for me as a German academic theologian, the whole concept of evolution being in conflict with creation 
is utterly ridiculous. Before I came into this country, I had never encountered it because it's just very alien. It really only exists in certain parts of the United States, that conflict. It doesn't exist <laughs> anywhere else in the world. And so when I encountered it, my idea or my explanation for that is that people try to reduce Christianity to something that is quite irrational because it's easier to discard it then. And I think people, when they encountered me at the beginning, they were kind of nervous because I'm not a wacko. <laughs> <laughs> Harder but, to discount. Yeah, I, I think at least I'm not. <laughs> Perhaps I am. But I think they were a little bit disconcerted, and so they tried to put me into an irrational category. They tried to denounce me, you know, as psychologically deluded. You know, I would destroy MIT's objectivity mm -hmm. and all these kind of attacks they had in order to kind of handle me. And In a way, it, when it happened, there was a real war out there. People tried to get rid of me and when it happened I was quite hurt but I had got tons of supporters mm -hmm. and tons of wonderful people who really supported me and so in retrospect it was also quite exciting you know it was kind of funny how religious those people were in their rejection of religion <laughs> you know? and it was quite emotional so that was quite interesting well one of the parallels you sort of allude to is the fact that science is somewhat of a religion itself yes I think I think there are scientists who are not and those are usually the scientists I interact with most but let's take for instance the project of building humanoid robots in our image. Mm -hmm. When you try to build humanoid robots that are like us, you have to assume that we are some kind of machine, right? Mm -hmm. Because otherwise we couldn't rebuild ourselves. And that's perfectly fine because, I mean, science always operates from assumption and then we see how far we get. And there is nothing wrong with that assumption. The problem is, however, when then scientists say, ah, and that means we are nothing but machines. So when they turn something they assume, for pragmatic reasons, into a statement about the reality of the world. Mm -hmm. And that is when I come into problems with them. And people who do that are usually exactly the ones who do not believe that humans are narrators. Because when I think about people like Rodney Brooks, my boss at MIT, my mm -hmm. former boss who was the head of the whole robot project, mm -hmm. he was very happy by saying, of course, in my life, I, in my work, I have to assume that humans are nothing but machines, but I don't want to be treated as machine, and I don't treat my kids machine. And he was perfectly happy to have that contrast within himself. And that is kind of, it's different stories that relate to different parts of who we are. But a lot of people are quite uncomfortable with that kind of discrepancy. And so they try to prove the correctness of their assumptions. And those are then, they, they then become religious. Mm -hmm. Almost fanatical, one might say. Yeah, yes, that's true. And you know what is so sad is that the fanaticism happens on both sides, mm -hmm. on both the religion, because, I mean, there are, of course, people in, in religion who try to prove that humans are more than machines. Mm -hmm. And they can't do that either. And then you have, because there is absolutely no evidence of something like a soul or so. Mm -hmm. And so you basically have people on both sides yelling at each other. And only when we kind of see that humans can help many, many different narratives mm -hmm. that are all true, but don't necessarily have to be coherent. Mm -hmm. Only if we admit that, then we can actually make peace with that. Sort of reconciling all these different stories together. Yeah, reconciling is a, is a difficult word because mm -hmm. I don't think that they can be reconciled. Mm -hmm. It c can be turned into one single story. But I think that all makes sense in certain contexts. Context. I mean, when I want to, for instance, to find out how a drug works, or if I want to study certain surgeries or certain medical things, right, or certain neurological things, every idea of humans more than machines gets in the way, right? Mm -hmm, right. I mean, I have to look at the functions and mechanisms of the human system. On the other hand, when I want to establish something like dignity and personhood, when I want to find for humanitarian causes against genocide, I have to assume that humans are more than machines, because otherwise I cannot give reason for any kind of protection of humanity, mm -hmm. right? And both stories make sense, but in very different contexts, and therefore both are equally important.
So while you're at MIT, you worked with these cog and kismet robots. Yeah. So I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that. Well, when I came first to MIT, the team had just started to build cog. So, I mean, they were just in the beginning. Cog was just a year old. Cog was a humanoid robot, party line above, with first one arm and later two arms and a torso and a head with eyes and mm-hmm. a gyroscope, ears and all that kind of stuff. And Cog was very cute and learned and learned especially to coordinate those various body parts. And it was really the first real life attempt to build a humanoid robot. So it was the first time that a serious robot team actually said, we want to try to build a humanoid. So by basically turning science fiction into reality. Mm-hmm. And I was quite intrigued by that. And what I especially liked about the whole Cog project was that these people did not say that the core of intelligence is chess playing mathematical theory improving, but they say that basically intelligence is the result of his human ingenious capability to survive just everywhere. Mm-hmm. In other words, intelligence is our capability, is, is a result of evolution, and the fact that we can play chess and do math is more or less a byproduct. Mm. So these people, they are concentrated on social interaction and on kind of coordinating the body. And that intrigued me because that is actually is exactly the understanding of humans that we can find in the Bible. Mm. In the Bible, what makes humans humans is they capability for relationships, Mm. especially with God, of course, and then also with one another. And so I kind of felt very much at home there. But the problem with COG was the people had so much difficulty to get COG to actually coordinate its body. And also COG was very massive, very tall, and kind of created a lot of anxiety and fear. And so Cynthia Brazil, she's today a professor in the media lab, after some years started Kismet. Because I had always been kind of saying that basically when you look at human development, humans are only in relation. I mean, we are so fundamentally relational. Mm-hmm. And with Cock, there was too much that the robot did on its own. And I always thought we need a robot that is purely reactive, that just reacts to input from the outside world and see what such a robot can do. And mm-hmm. so Cynthia basically had the same ideas as I, and so she went away and came back with the first proto-Kismet. And from then on, Cock for me was dead. I only interacted with <laughs> Kismet. Kismet is a very, very cute face. I mean, you basically fall in love with it, right? away. Mm-hmm. It mimics your facial expressions. It has facial expressions itself. It babbles and it interacts with you in a quite profound way. Mm-hmm. And that was very intriguing, especially because when I presented Kismet to non-technical audiences, they were much more fascinated by it, but also much more afraid because they were afraid of all the emotions they had towards that robot. And of course, with, which they didn't want to have because it's just <laughs> a stupid machine, right? And so uh, Kismet was much more powerful to actually do what I want to do, which is kind of confronting people with their own mechanisms of social interactions, confront people with the fact that they are capable of reacting just to b- about everything, mm-hmm. and then making them aware who they are. I mean, uh, I recall in the book you mentioned even a very simple computer program written in the 60s was able to draw yes, out. Yes, Eliza. Was that draw. was actually written by Joseph Weizenbaum, who was a normal AI professor, and then the fact that his students used that program, Eliza, which was a simple question and answer program to solve their own personal problems, turned him into a critique of AI. Hmm. And it was actually Joe Weizenbaum who got me to MIT. I met him in Germany and he gave a talk there. And that talk actually inspired me to start doing the research I'm doing. And it was him then who invited me to MIT. It was kind of interesting. I think he had more hope that I would become more somewhat of a critic of AI. <laughs> okay. But I never became one. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's too much reason behind it. So. Indeed, indeed. So what does this mean for our development in the future of robots? Do you think there will be a community then of interactive robots and a community of 
humans and robots interacting as storytellers? Yes, definitely. What I always like to think about robots is that they will be our future partner species. Mm -hmm. In a way, when you look at humans, we are desperately lonely. We look so desperately for animal intelligence. You know, we try to communicate with chimps and dolphins and all that stuff. And at the same time, we also try to search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So in a way, we are a very lonely species. And for me as theologian, that's mostly because we lost our relationship with God, which was started at the beginning. So it makes total sense that we try to build a species that will be our partners and friends. And I see a big chance that those robots will become exactly that. Because the nice thing about them is what we have learned through Cog and Kismet is that the best way to build an intelligent machine is actually to build it in accordingly to a human newborn and let, like a human newborn, let it grow mm. in its intelligence through interaction with humans. And so those robots can only become smart if they have interaction, which is exactly like a human baby becomes eventually a smart grown-up. And so we have to build them communal. And so in a way, that will be the most fascinating thing about them. I, I always say that, you know, for me, the Frankenstein story, people mm -hmm. tell the story of Frankenstein always, that Frankenstein built this monster, and this monster turns against humanity, right? Mm -hmm. But the way I see it is much more that Frankenstein builds this monster, or its creature, his creature, mm -hmm. and leaves the creature alone alone. So the creature has actually never a chance to bond, and this is why it becomes evil. And so I think if we build the robots in a way that we have to interact with them in a good way to make them smart, then it will be a great relationship. Is this sort of the direction that people are taking in terms of building intelligent robots? Yes. There's still the old camp that thinks you can rebuild intelligent programs and disembodied, unconnected machines. Mm -hmm. And they certainly serve certain intelligent databases and all stuff. They certainly serve that purpose. But I think when it really comes down to real interactive technology, we have to build them embodied and social. Mm -hmm. Great. Well, we are running slowly out of time here, but I'm just curious, how did you become interested in this whole topic here? <laughs> well, I mean, actually, it's kind of funny. Um, first of all, I was always fascinated with technology. Mm -hmm. You know, when I was four years old, I was building my own little machines and stuff. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I really have to admit, I fell very early on in love with humans, and I'm just fascinated to see how we work. And so I think I started first to study theology, and then I realized I want to do something technical, too. And it's really my quest, what does it mean to be human? Who am I? Mm. That kind of drove me to gather as many insights from as many disciplines as possible. And I guess AI and religion both kind of, I'm most gifted for those. Uh, well, I, th I think you certainly made a very major effort, I think, one that's a unique academic field here. <laughs> well, thank you. I try to. I hope it is received well, but it was a really, really hard product. I mean, just writing the book took me, I don't know how many years. <laughs> Congratulations for writing the book, God in the Machine. Well, thank teachers, you. Uh, which I believe is out in stores now. Yes, as of today, it is in stores. Oh, very good. All right. Well, congratulations again, and thank you for uh, joining us today on Berkeley Grocks. Okay. And you were just listening to Professor Anne Force discussing her book, God and Machine, What Robots Teach Us About Humanity and God. You're listening to Berkeley Grocks only here on 90.7 FM KALX. Well, coming up next, the Grokatron 5000, our holiday product review, and the answer to last week's question of the week. So stay tuned. She's a black belt in karate Working for the city She has to discipline her body Cause she knows that She can 
back to Berkeley Grox, only here on 90.7 FM KLX. Well, Professor Ann Forst, author of God in the Machine, What Robots Teach Us About Humanity and God, has graciously decided to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000. The Grokatron 5000 is our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue, and today he has chosen the topic, Robot or Human? So, for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 will like to know, are they a robot or are they human? Are you ready to play a game of the Grokatron 5000? Yes, I am. <laughs> okay. The Grokatron 5000, number one, California Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger, robot or human? Robot. Well, isn't that obvious? <laughs> you know, pumping as much iron as he did can only machine. And then he played the Terminator so convincingly. <laughs> and uh, to apologize for my impoliteness, I have to admit that Germans hate Austrians by definition. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so. I'm sure he'll, he'll take that under advisement. <laughs> <laughs> Number two, Scott Peterson. I have to unfortunately admit human. Mm. We haven't been able to build robots evil yet. And hopefully never. Uh, Well, hopefully they will be the better people. I don't know. Uh, Number three, basketball superstar Shaquille O'Neal. Oh, that's a hard one. I would say when I watch him playing Daphne the Machine, he is just so beautiful (laughs) and so perfect. But when I hear him off the field, I would say he is really human and modest. So I think probably human. Uh, number four, robot or human, uh, actor Brent Spiner. Totally admire him. You know, in all the roles I have seen, he makes this laugh, which is completely inhuman. Especially you when you look at him in Independence Day. Yes. <laughs> he is definitely a machine. Okay. And finally, number five, robot or human, the president of the United States, George Bush. Machine. Absolutely no question, because he is indeed a question of intelligence. We are so lousy in AI and building actually smart machines that Bush can only be a robot. And I say that fully conviction without excuse of him being Austria. And I hope he doesn't kick me out of the country. So I have to admit that, you know, even though we learn through Kog and Kismet that we need to be interactive in order to be smart, he's also lousy in interaction. <laughs> okay. So I think it's low on intelligence, low on interaction, therefore has to be a machine. Uh, I think he skipped the development phase or something. <laughs> Uh, okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> Professor Forrest, I want to thank you very much again joining us today on Berkeley Grox to discuss your book, God in the Machine. For and having me. That was fun. Yes, indeed. All right. Well, thank you very much. Bye. And now it's our annual uh, product guide for Christmas. I suppose so. <laughs> so what's the uh, best high-tech gadget you've seen this year? Uh, well, I know the most overly hyped one has certainly got to be the iPod. Well, have you heard of the iPod? I haven't heard of it, but I'm actually curious. Ooh. It's actually from Playboy.com, oh. and it's supposed to go with the photo iPod. So basically, it gives you images of tasteful ladies to sync with your music. Does it come in many sensual colors as well? Not sure. I, I believe they're all based on real pictures. Okay. But I'm sure they have versions in which it is based on the iPod silhouette. I'm glad to see that people are using the iPod for very important and enlightening enlightening activities. <laughs> what more could you ask for, really? I don't know. What are you hoping for this Christmas? How about weapons of mass destruction? I would actually give those to you, but I can't seem to find them. <laughs> so, I thought I knew where they were. Yeah, the military's not having a good time either, huh? Uh, very little. <laughs> so, very cool. Wish everybody out there a Merry Christmas. Yes, Merry Christmas to everyone out there, and good don't night. drink and drive. <laughs> yeah, and be sane this holiday weekend. Mm, yes, Gollum also likes Christmas. Ooh, precious. But he even likes more. Epididymus. Yes, Epididymus. Ooh. But what is Epididymus? Oh, from the vast difference, it takes the power of C2 to the urethra. Oh, and it's one tube to rule them all. Mm. And Yoda with this week's question of the week. Green it is and power it gives to plants. Hmm. What is it? If you know the answer, or think you know the answer, email us at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything. 
Mm. But you know what it's like to be green. And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music with your host, Katie. Thank you.